maybe sometime when I was going to preach and stuff, and my heart was really geared already towards if I was going to speak on speaking about the Bible and stuff like that. And Aaron just said, "Well, you know, why don't you take this topic and let's talk about that for your uh, Sunday morning service?" So pretty excited about what God's doing here. Uh, if, you, uh, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Second uh, Timothy, chapter three. We're going to look at verses 14 through 17. That was uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Give you guys a few minutes to turn there. Second Timothy 3, 14 through 17 reads, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. As we continue with our worship and as we come to the, the study of God's word together, and we want to worship, worship God through the study of his word, and as we approach the seriousness of this topic, I pray that you guys, or I ask that you guys would bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you and we praise you. God, we ask for your grace and for your mercy. God, we ask that as we study your word, God, that every word, Lord God, would penetrate our hearts. God, Lord, that we would understand that what you're saying to us through this Bible, God, what you're saying to us through this passage of Scripture. God, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see, God, ears to hear, Lord, a humble heart, God. Lord, I pray for me. And God, as I try to communicate these eternal truths, God, to your people. Well, God, I pray that you'd guide me by the power of your Holy Spirit. The Lord God, that I would just hold on to you. God, we love you and we praise you and we thank you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. As Aaron kind of talked to you guys a little bit earlier, for those of you who uh, may be new here or haven't been with us, we're in this Bible study, a church-wide Bible study, really, where our youth ministry is doing it, the ch- children's services, the ministries are doing that, and where the church body are kind of diving into God's Word for 40 days. And this is what this whole foundation thing is about, because last week Aaron talked to us about the Word of God is foundational to our lives as followers of Christ. The one thing that he really wanted to bring home last week to us was we can't just be listeners or learners of the Word, that we have to be doers. That's what all these little white things up here talk about how we can practically live out the Word of God. What we're going to tackle this week is, you know, if I'm supposed to build my life off of this, if this is supposed to be my foundation, shouldn't I see if it's reliable? See, this may seem like kind of a no-brainer question for some people. Maybe, you know, well, it's kind of obvious, don't you think? Or maybe you guys have dealt with other people who've questioned the reliability of Scripture. Uh, in a survey, I'm going to read these statistics to you. They're kind of mind-blowing, actually. Uh, just in a regular survey, when Americans were asked what they believed about the Bible, 31% believed that the Bible was the Word of God. 31% of Americans. 49%, the, survey, the same survey showed, that Americans believe that the Bible contains the Word of God, but that it's not... You know, that it can't really, not, some of it's not literal, or that maybe it contains some flaws and errors. To take it a step further, to kind of bring it a little more home to you guys, you guys, Barna, the Christian research group, they did a survey, and they asked Christians this. It says, 
when Christians were faced with the statement that the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same spiritual truths, roughly 40% of Christians agreed with that statement. 40%, which is like, well, that's, that's kind of low because you think 60% disagreed, but the survey is actually completely split. 40% of Christians agreed that that statement is true. Only 40% of Christians disagreed. 20% of Christians didn't know what to say. So is the Bible actually reliable or are there some flaws in it? And I started thinking, it's like, really? Really? Is that how far that we've fallen from you know, our foundation as a, as a people? Is that how far we've let scriptures be attacked where people can start questioning the reliability of this? I started thinking, what can make us think that way? What in the world has warped our minds to that point? I came up with three things. First of all, is our friends. We tend to hold to the views that our friends hold to. And even if we don't hold to those views, if we believe the Bible is reliable and our friend doesn't, and they start talking to us about that, it can make us question the reliability of Scripture. The second thing I came up with was a family. This goes for actually Christian homes and non-Christian homes because in a Christian home, we're supposed to abide by the Word. It's supposed to be the foundation, but if somebody in that family or somebody down the street sees the Christian family not obeying what the Word says and not living like the Bible says, and they act no different than anybody else, how can their foundation be reliable? How's that trustworthy? See the connection there. And then also in the non-Christian home, Kids are influenced by their parents. And typically, not always, but typically, this is what you have. If the family doesn't really uphold the word of God, neither will the children, unless God intervenes by his grace and mercy. But that's what we have. The biggest influence, though, is our culture. Now, I'm not talking about media or movies or music or anything like that. I'm talking about philosophies. I'm talking about the ideas that are presented within our culture. The biggest idea we have now in our culture is that there's no absolute truth, which I do want to point out is a contradictory statement because that's an absolute statement. You can't say there's no absolute truth and not, that not be an absolute statement. It just doesn't make sense. But we'll leave that alone for right now. But anyway, you come here and you think about this. The other thing is not only is there no authority, absolute truth, but they're also that words have no inherent meaning, that words are kind of vague, that they don't really carry any weight anymore, that the meaning now depends upon what the reader thinks it means and not what the author meant by what he wrote. And you take that truth, and well, their truth, and you apply that to, they look at the Bible, you can see how things get messed up. Because if I have an interpretation of a passage and then Pastor Aaron has something that's completely different, well, how is this reliable if the two people or followers of Jesus come up with two different things? It doesn't depend on what me and Aaron think at all. One of us would be wrong, and we'd have to face up to that. This is the mindset that people have now. This is the mindset that even is apparently is penetrating not only the secular world, but is penetrating what the, what we as followers of Christ believe. Now, if this isn't foundational, if this isn't reliable, what am I supposed to do? So the question that we need to ask is, is there any accuracies to be found within the scriptures? If you guys are still in 2 Timothy, I want you guys to put a finger there, put a piece of paper there, uh, the bulletin, throw something in that place, and uh, turn with me 
to Proverbs 30, verse 5. Proverbs 30, verse 5. And it reads like this. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The other translations will say that, you know, the word of God is flawless, or you have something probably like that in your guys' translations. The idea here is that, look, the word of God is truth, that it has no error in it, and that it can be proven true. There's two areas we're going to look at just in the short little bit of time that we have together. First of all, the Bible is scientifically accurate. For centuries, people believed that the earth was flat. That, you know, if I was on a boat or whatever, that eventually I would fall off. And that's how it kind of worked. That was their worldview. But you read Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 22. You know what he says? He says that the earth is a circle, that it's a sphere. Long before science ever discovers this fact, back in 700 BC, actually, Isaiah declares that the earth is a circle or that it's a sphere. Another interesting uh, scientific fact that you can find in the scriptures is the ancient people, they thought that, you know, this has to set on something to uphold it, right? You can't hold anything if nothing's underneath it. And that's how they viewed the earth. Actually, what they thought was that the earth set upon this big giant turtle with two little elephants kind of on the side. And I don't know how you get giant turtle, two little elephants upholding the earth and how this all works, cause, but that's what they thought. But the book of Job, which, by the way, uh, many scholars will say this is probably the oldest book that we have in the Old Testament, that Job actually probably lives before Abraham, very early, the book of Job. Job 26.7 says that God takes the earth and he hangs it on nothing. The Bible declares that the earth is not setting on anything. If science would have looked at that and only looked at that verse, they would have understood that, hey, you know, the Bible says that there's nothing there. How in the world can Job, who has no scientific knowledge at all, can't look outside in the space and see that the earth sets on nothing. How can he know? The second thing we're going to look at is historically, the Bible is historically accurate. That is, history has actually confirmed what we have in the scriptural accounts. My favorite example is Joshua 6. In this story, you have the Israelites, they've come up out of the nation of Israel, and that they're marching and everything, and they come to uh, nation of Israel has come up out of exile and they're coming into the promised land that God promised to them. And they're sitting there and God says, you're going to come to the city of Jericho. And in this city, y'all want you guys to march around it for seven days, shouting. And on the seventh day, when you guys make a great shout, the walls will crumble and you guys will run in and you guys will take over the city. Israel does what God says and the Bible account says that walls crumble, they go in and take the city. People have made fun of that story for a long time. People have actually said, well, you know, that can't be really true. That doesn't really happen. That, they made fun of it until uh, not that long ago, actually, until archaeologists found the ancient city of Jericho. You know what they found in the ancient city of Jericho? That the city was burned and that the outer walls, not a part of it, all of the outer walls have been crumbled, just like the Bible said. That's amazing for the fact that we have a scriptural account and people made fun of it and God just kind of proves it to them anyway and lets them find the city of Jericho. Second thing is you have this New Testament 
type of a guy, not in the New Testament, but he lives in the time of the New Testament, the first century, you know, the time of Jesus. He's by the name of Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian who writes history for the Greeks. And he actually gives an account of the death of Jesus. Not only does he just say that there's this guy named Jesus, he died. He says that people saw him as a, you know, what they saw him as, a prophet, a miracle man, from a worldly perspective, because that's what some people held Jesus to be anyway. But he doesn't only mention Jesus. He mentions Pilate. He mentions John the Baptist. He mentions James. He mentions some other New Testament faces that we see in the Scriptures. Another thing, historically, the most of the New Testament was written by the apostle, or the, not the apostle, but the writer Luke. I know he only writes two books, but word for word, Luke writes most of the New Testament. And what you have here, historians will tell you that for his time, Luke is a great history writer. Even in the beginning of his gospel, he tells and he describes, look, Theophilus, the guy he's writing to, he says, look, I've went and researched all this stuff, and this is what I found out about Jesus. Even in the book of Acts, as Luke's writing it, he makes detailed with precision who were the governors, where they were at, what cities they were over. He gives this historical account that historians will say is completely accurate. The Bible is historically accurate. There's no flaws there. The third thing that we want to look at is absolutely amazing is the fact that the Bible contains fulfilled prophecy. Uh, If you guys would turn to 2 Peter that's a little bit after 2 Timothy. So just go past 2 Timothy now on the other side to 2 Peter, verses 1 through 19. That's 2 Peter, verses 1 through 19. And it reads, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Another passage that talks about the prophecy of the Bible, you guys don't need to turn there, I'm just going to read it to you. It's Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. And in this passage, God says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. These passages speak of God being a God of prophecy. Only God can tell the future from the very beginning. He can declare what is coming. He can declare the end from the very beginning. And he declares it with an exact T. My a lot of people will talk about the examples of prophecy of, you know, the details accounts of Jesus. And we'll get to that. But one that I really love because it's kind of outside of that box of what you normally hear is Isaiah forty four twenty eight. You guys don't have to turn there because we'll, we're just jumping through a lot of scriptures here. But Isaiah forty four twenty eight it says this. It says, a man named Cyrus will come. And Cyrus will. Basically, he'll rebuild Jerusalem. And he's going to lay the foundation for the temple. Like, okay, name's a name, tells what he's going to do, you know, big deal. 300 to 400 years later, a Persian king, nothing to do with the scripture, so it's not like he read this account of Isaiah and said, oh, I'll go do what Isaiah told me to do, because he doesn't know. But he goes, and King Cyrus' name goes and lets the people of Israel out of exile for the 
the third exile now or so. And they go back to Jerusalem, and he builds the walls of Jerusalem, and he lays the foundation for the temple. Exactly as God said he would. This has actually made people question a lot of what time the book of Isaiah was written, because there's no way that somebody can name somebody by name 300 to 400 years earlier. But there is, absolutely, because God's a God of prophecy. And he he can fulfill what he's declared. Other examples, like I said, the Jesus prophecies. You have Isaiah 53, and you have Psalm 22 that give a detailed account of what Jesus had to go through whenever he was placed upon a cross. Psalm 22, it says these words, it says, and they pierced his hands, and they pierced his feet. So I'm like, okay. It talks about somebody being killed. Okay. Historians, not biblical scholars, not you know, somebody who has some kind of a connection with the Bible, just regular historians will tell you that that right there describes crucifixion perfectly. Okay, that's good. But it describes crucifixion perfectly 800 to 1,000 years before crucifixion is even a means of execution. So before it's even in the minds of anybody else, David writes about somebody being killed that way. We know that person to be Jesus Christ. That's crazy. That is all that is good stuff to hold on to. That's solid stuff that you can go and show people. You can take people to that and say, look, this is what it says. This is things that you can look to for accuracies. But that doesn't address the heart of the issue at all. See, the heart of the issue isn't really one of reliability. The question of authority, the question of origin. Because if the Bible is reliable, then it has to hold some kind of authority over my life because I have to look to it. And if it has authority, that authority can only come from the one who wrote it. And that brings us back to the Second Timothy passage, if you guys want to go ahead and turn there. What I love about this passage is, as I was studying this week, you can't really read through the book of Second Timothy and not be completely humbled at all. And you see what Paul is going through, and you understand the kind of the background to what Paul is facing here. This is his second imprisonment now. This isn't the one that you read about in the book of Acts. This is a little harsher under some really heavy persecution of the church in this time. And what you have here, Paul says, I'm being bound like a criminal, that I'm in chains. He says that everybody's left me, and I'm alone. He talks about how that you know, apparently he must be somewhat cold because he tells Timothy, Timothy, come to me before winter and please, please, Timothy, bring my cloak with you. You have this dark, gloomy, sad picture of the Apostle Paul as he's sitting in this dark dungeon, waiting death, as he says in his letter. You know, probably surrounded a lot by bricks like this. Only nobody's there with him. And it's kind of cold as I said. But one thing that I really love about this, Paul says, you know, I'm bound like a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. See, Paul has two things on his mind. The first thing, this young guy that he's writing to, young Timothy, is a pastor who's been with him all his, most of Paul's ministry, and he's been walking with him, and he's seen how Paul has handled things, and he says, Timothy, look, I am being persecuted for my faith. Do not be ashamed of me or of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stand firm in the faith. The second thing Paul is concerned with is the scriptures. He tells Timothy, Timothy, hold on to the strong teaching. Hold on to the sound words that you've learned. 
even though Paul's facing death nearly into this letter in chapter 4, he tells Timothy, Timothy, bring my cloak, number one. Bring me my books, especially the parchments. And what most people say here is that what Paul's asking for is he wants his copy of the Old Testament. He wants the Word of God. Now, why does Paul so concerned with the Word of God here? If he's facing death, what's the point? If this is what his reality is, what's the point of keep on studying? What in the world is he supposed to do with this now? I think Paul has a lot better grip on something that we say that we have a grip on, but that we've somewhat lost in our minds and especially with how we live it out in our lives. See, he goes on to tell Timothy in this passage. It starts off, but as for you, there's a strong contrast here. This, but, well, why am I supposed to be different than Paul? Before this passage, he's telling Timothy, look, a time is coming. Is, you know, even as uh, we talked about through worship or whatever, when we talked about our time's coming short. And he says, look, in the last days, godlessness will abound. People will basically rail against everything that God has set up. And you know what? People are not going to listen to sound teaching anymore. They're going to oppose the truth. Even after this passage, he's telling Timothy again, reiterating the fact, look, people are not going to listen to your sound teaching. People are going to listen to people that they want to. They're going to gather people around them that they want to hear. who doesn't really make them feel uncomfortable. And they're going to stand on that because that's what they want to hear. But as for you, Timothy... You're to stand strong in sound teaching. This passage says, Timothy, look, stand strong in what you have learned and from whom you have learned it because you know why? Because it's rooted and grounded in the scriptures. As verse 16 points out, and the scriptures are come from God. Some translations, mine says, are breathed out by God. Uh, some translations say they're inspired by God. The Greek word there, the, the Greek really says this, that all scriptures, theonoustos, combination of two words theo god nustos breathe the niv translates it most correctly and it says that all scripture is god breathe that scripture is something that comes from inside of god and he pours it out it's from him the question of reliability no longer is you know can i trust the bible it's can i trust god it calls his character into question as we sing about god is faithful god is good the Bible declares that God is holy and that he's righteous, that he's loving, that he's merciful, that God can't lie, and that God can't change. So if there's one error in this foundation, if there's one error in the scriptures, then God's not loving because then God allowed a lie, and the lie to somebody is not loving at all. He wouldn't be holy because then he'd be tainted by sin because he set it up that way, because he said, look, Thou shalt not lie. And how would it look if God in his word lied to us? See, it makes no sense at all. And so when we start thinking about this kind of stuff, and we really are kind of blown away by the fact that, you know, maybe what the world keeps telling me isn't necessarily true. Maybe all this stuff about you know, the Bible, what they keep telling me, that it's not accurate, that it has flaws. Maybe that's not true because it came from God. See, if the Bible is reliable, as I said earlier, then it has to hold up and it's absolutely authoritative. 
some may even disagree with what I'm saying because what I'm using is circular reasoning. It's a circular argument. I believe the Bible to be true because the Bible says it's true. Okay, and that's, that's true. I'm, I'm making a circular argument. You know why? Because if I believe, as Jesus says in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus sets the word of God up as a high standard of absolute authority and absolute truth. And if I appeal to anything else besides the scriptures, then I've put something else above the Bible. I made that the authority. I can't do that because the Bible is the absolute authority. Just, let me give you guys an example. Say, uh, say Pastor Aaron comes to my house. Okay, and he notices that my curtains and everything are kind of down in my window. And, you know, he knocks on the door and I don't answer. And he, he keeps knocking. And I, I finally say, hey, come in. And he walks in and he finds me bundled up. I have a hat on. I have gloves on. A big giant coat. A blanket. I have a little fire going. And I'm gathering wood together in my living room. And Aaron just kind of looks at me and says, what in the world are you doing? So, Aaron, there's a winter storm coming. I'm preparing for that. He's, Jesse, there's no storm coming at all. Yeah, yeah, there is. And he begins to tell me about his experiences outside. You know, it's that the birds are chirping, you know, flowers are blooming, the grass is green, Jesse, the sun is shining, there's, the skies are completely blue. What are you talking about? And I still don't believe him. So Aaron says, okay, well, let's look at how the seasons work here in Ohio. And he tells me about spring and how this works, how it comes after winter and all that stuff, and I still don't believe him. So Aaron says, well, you know what? If you won't believe me and my words for it, then I'll take you, and we look at the weather. And he shows me the radar and all that kind of stuff, and he shows me the, what the weatherman's saying, but I still, I don't believe him. What's the best way Aaron can get me to understand that there's no winter storm coming? Aaron's going to take me. He's going to lead me. He said, well, come on. He's going to take me outside. Because that's the absolute authority over, is there a winter storm coming? He's going to take me back to the source. And that's what we need to do with people when we're dealing with scriptures and the reliability of, you know, the Bible. Is this the word of God? Take them to the Bible because that's the source. This is why when the famous, uh, the famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon, when he was asked to defend the Bible, he responded, defend the Bible? I would just as soon defend the lion. Just turn the Bible loose. It'll defend itself. You got to love that quote, right? I don't need to defend the Bible. The Bible can defend itself. It'd be crazy for me to try to defend the lion because it wouldn't work. The Bible, the lion can defend itself. The Bible more so can defend itself because it's the absolute authority of God's word. You know, often what's really happened in our mindset, you guys know the game telephone? That if I start off with the message and I say, say I tell it to my wife, and she tells it to who somebody sent beside her, and he passes it on, and it goes all the way around the room, and it comes back to me. What we have in our mindset is, well, you know, the message is never the same at the end than when it began. It's completely different, and that's how we view the passing down of Scripture, that there's no way that that's the same message because it's been so many years. Let me tell you guys a unique, interesting fact. The Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different people in three different languages in different parts of the Middle East world and by different people, like different types of people. You have fishermen writing the Bible. You have kings. You have priests. You have shepherds. You have temple playing people that play the instruments in the temple. That's, you have a big group of people, but yet 
The message is the same. There's no contradictory statement at all in Scripture. That actually falls on us and our misinterpretations of the Bible. And we kind of get that all confused and stuff. We say, the Bible contains errors. No, we have an error in our thinking. The Scripture is true. Because it's from God. It is the absolute Word of God. So here's my question for a lot of us that we need to start asking ourselves. Now, if all we do today is we gathered here together and we start answering some of these questions, that means absolutely nothing. You see, because the Bible wasn't just written by one person, like I said earlier, 40 different people. God chose to work through 40 different authors. First Peter, uh, Second Peter, rather, 121 actually says, a little bit from the passage we read earlier, says that these men were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that God's words and human words became fused together, and God worked through them to bring us the message that he wants us to have. And if that's something that we need to hold on to, if we need to understand that, as Paul says, the scripture is God breathed as he chose to work through men. That's what we have from scripture. And if we believe it to be the authority that we have to come to terms with what it says. Like I said, if all we've done to come here is to change, that makes no difference. Or if we haven't come here to change, that makes no difference. Now the question is, can I trust the word of God? Can I stand upon this? Absolutely, right? This thing, it's completely solid. This thing's not going anywhere. So what difference does it make at all? First of all, let me say this. That if there is some kind of error in any part of this instruction, and I started to jump up and down or stomp on this even harder or anything like that, this thing would fall, okay? That this thing would come crumbling down. Why? Because it wouldn't be solid as, I'm, as we, we're claiming that it's solid. Also be... The, the same way with scriptures, if this is solid, and if there's one error in the Bible, then the whole system kind of breaks down because then I get to choose what's true, and I get to choose what's false because I'll pick the things that I like. God bless me? All right, yeah. But God disciplined me for my sin? God wouldn't do that. God wouldn't do that, no. And see, that's what we would start doing. If we don't trust in the reliability of Scripture, if we believe that there's errors, then you become the authority and not God. Beyond that, when I'm talking to others about Jesus, I'm trying to show them and point them to the person of Christ. This passage says, the Scriptures make you wise for salvation. These are things that I can take people to. Why can I take them to the scriptures? Because they tell them about Jesus. Even from the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, you have a promise of one who's going to come and is going to crush the head of Satan as Satan bruises his heel. You have this whole picture of redemption throughout the Bible, and this is all brought up to the point of Jesus. If you're talking to somebody, take them there. I am now able to be transformed into the image of Christ. Because of the scriptures. They have that kind of ability. That verse 17 says, you know, so that the man of God or woman of God may be fully equipped. Making for every good work. Literally, the Greek there says, I'm able to meet all demands by the scriptures. That is what, that's what transforms me. That's what makes me able to do what God wants me to do. That makes me the person that God wants me to be is the scriptures. They have that supernatural ability because they have that kind of authority over my life. 
I am now bound to preach only the word of God. It won't suffice to preach my own thoughts, my own opinions. Those have to be kind of tossed to the wayside because no longer does it matter what I care about. As Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. In season, out of season, exhort, correct, teach, reprove. Look, stand on the word of God. Preach that because that right there will suffice. That will do more than my own thoughts or opinions will ever do. I'm now bound to obey the word of God. Because if I disbelieve or disobey the Bible, I disobey or disbelieve God himself. That's a hard thing to contend with. Because there's some things in the Bible that are not easy for many of us to deal with. Even in our theology or in our conduct and how we live. Our goal is to be submissive to Scripture. So, the thing that we really need to look at, what you really need to consider, look, this is God's word to you. It's inerrant. It means it's without fault. It has complete authority over you. It's not about really anything else besides God, as we said earlier. So the question that you need to ask yourself is, do you trust him? Do you trust him? God? Do you trust the one that wrote the Bible with everything that you have? You guys pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, as we come and look at your word, God, and Lord, we can sit there and think about how awesome, God, you are in all your ways. God, how that you wrote the Bible, Lord God, and because you wrote it, I can say that it's scientifically accurate, God. I can say that, you know, it's historically accurate now because you wrote it, God, and you're the God of history. Lord God, you're the God that can tell the end from the beginning. Lord God, I love you so much for all that you've done in my life. Lord God, I pray, Father, as we come together, God, as a church body, Lord God, that this would penetrate our hearts, God, and our minds, Lord. God, that we live for you. Jesus, we love you and we praise you. God, we thank you for the work that you've done on the cross. God, we love you. We worship you and thank you for all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I want you guys to know something. We love you guys, okay? If you guys, maybe you guys have been here before, maybe you haven't been here before, and maybe you've, you know, you're not really where you want to be with Jesus at all. Then you haven't really made that connection with Christ at all. I'll make something clear before we get to the gospel because I'm standing on the word of God. The Bible says a couple things that you guys need to know. First of all, is that God's holy and he's just and he's righteous. The Bible says that we've broken his commands. If you've lied, God sees us as a liar. If we've stolen anything, we're a thief before his eyes. God says that even hatred in God's eyes is considered to be murder. And we look at those things. Those are the commandments that God will judge mankind by. And if God judges us justly, as the Bible says he will, we're in a world of trouble. Because if we see that, God says his punishment is hell. And that is a terrifying thought. That's a terrifying thought for me, and it should be a terrifying thought for you. Eternity in a place of eternal fire. And I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to be condemning or anything like that. I want to awaken you guys to the fact of a reality of something, is that that's how we stand before a holy God. And that there's absolutely nothing that you can do to save yourself. One of the questions that typically comes up, well, isn't a God a God of love? Yeah, the question that you got to come up with, though, if God is just, how can he show you love? You guys get the picture? On the cross 2,000 years ago, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, down to earth. He lived the perfect life. 
never done anything wrong at all. And when Jesus went to the cross, God justified your wrath by pouring it out on the body of Christ. One, piece, one pastor put it, he said, look, when Christ was on the cross, he drank your hell. You want to talk about something that's good news. The fact that Jesus took God's wrath for me, that is good news. That's the gospel. And the fact that Jesus died and he rose again, defeating the grave, and he now he offers us new life. Patrick talked about how he could have lost his life this week. Aaron has to do a funeral later from a guy who was in a tragic car accident. Look, you don't know your next moment at all. You don't have, you may not have tomorrow to get around to it as a lot of people say. Today's the day. The Bible says that, that you repent of your sins, which means to turn away from, and that you stray away from wickedness. Yeah, you'll stumble, you'll fall, but if you remain in God's grace. The Bible says if you repent of your sins and you believe and confess Jesus as Lord, you'll be saved. And today you'll have everlasting life. As we went through, and many of you guys raised your hands about things you guys are going through. I want you guys to know something. It brings great comfort to me. Romans 5 speaks about how we can stand in grace. How we don't have to beg or we don't have to plead with God to pour out his grace on us. We don't have to do anything crazy. We don't have to jump up and down. The Bible says this is a place that you step in and you stay there. That God's grace is just washing over you. If that's you, if you need God's grace, it's there. As we take the next couple of moments, I want you guys to reflect on your life.